was that a Roman Catholic priest, a Methodist minister, a Presbyterian pastor, and a Baptist preacher went on what we'll call a ecumenical fishing trip. As they were out in the boat casting their lines, they had an argument, wondering among themselves which denomination Jesus would be if he were here. The Roman Catholic, of course, said, well, no doubt. Jesus would be part of the Mother Church, the Catholic Church. The Presbyterian chimed in with ardency and staunchness. How else? No, no, no. You mean to tell me that he wouldn't be Presbyterian with all the effect that John Calvin has had on the church? Surely Jesus would be aligned with the Reformed faith. The Methodist minister wasn't having it. Think about the Wesley brothers, he said. John and Charles and the mark that they've made on Christendom, surely our Lord would be of Methodist conviction. The Baptist preacher sat there for a minute, silent, taking it all in, listening to the arguments, percolating just a bit. And then he said to the others, boys, I can't see how he's going to change. It's a way homer. Come on now. Okay. I thought it was a cute little joke, but you don't, no one gets it, man. I don't know how he's going to change. I don't think he's going to change. He's saying he's a Baptist. Thank you, Corby. (laughs) Barnes did get the joke earlier. There is a tendency, I suspect, especially because we're an anxious people, because we're an insecure people, and we're in a world where it's not really clear who's right about things. There's a tendency to need to know that you're right and to think that whatever your conviction is, if it differs from another, means that you're right and they must be wrong. And it divides us. It keeps us separated. And one of the things that we're going to be addressing for the next several weeks is a series called Life Together, which is, as Corby mentioned earlier, It's named for the book that has been written in the 20th century by a Christian martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred for being caught in an assassination attempt on Hitler. A man who wrote a book that had a lot to say about life together as a people who've been commonly acted upon by God and what that means for our interactions and what that means for the world. We are a people, I think, who long, and the world around us similarly craves, to be a people who belong to each other. To know that there are rooms that we can walk in, and the people who meet us there will be excited that we came. To know that there are places where we can come home, and there are people waiting for us who are glad that we're walking through the door. We're people who long to be able to go to our middle school classroom or to be newly into high school or college and not have to worry so much about fitting in by becoming like everybody else, but wanting to belong because people are glad that we are like we are. And we get to hear what Jesus has to say about those kind of aspirations, the aspirations for which the world craves, but which they rarely get to experience. And Jesus says this, 
My prayer, we're just looking at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I'm starting at verse 20. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as I am in you and you are in me. May they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Our, pers- our first point, first point today is this. Let Jesus' prayer become a primary pursuit of yours. Have you ever had an experience as a kid where your parents were in another room and they were talking and they started with hushed voices? And of course, the hushed voice for a child is nothing but a magnet. It's an invitation, isn't it? Not, oh, they're whispering. That's not of anything of interest. It's they're whispering. I must barge in. I must put a glass to the door. I must open up my spy kit and bug the room. What are they talking about? And if you catch wind that they're planning a trip, what? We're going to the beach? We're going to Disney World? That wouldn't be that exciting to me, but but a kid might like that, I think, theoretically. We, in a similar way, get to listen to Jesus have a conversation with his father. A father, he says, we're quite close. You know, he talks about how I'm in you and you are in me. This is a father he's heard say, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Listen to me. This is a son who has said about the father and what we would call codependency. I never do a thing without the father telling me to. I only do his business. It's the father in me, living in me, doing his work. There's such an interconnectedness between them that they just think of one another as they think of themselves. And we get to hear Jesus, who has a relationship like that with God, having a private conversation that we get to walk in on like little kids when our parents are talking. And we get to find out where we're headed. And it's our own private version or our own corporate version of Disney World because better than Disney World where it's really hot and sticky and a lot of long lines and you're going to get poor when you go there. He's talking about the creation of a community on earth that serves as a sign to the world that God has a great deal of affection for writing everything that's been topsy-turvy, turned upside down in the world. He's giving us, as a community, a taste that we can show the world something that they rarely see, but they always crave. And it's oneness. It's unity. It's this connectedness, being so connected to each other and to God that it's the same thing as God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that that kind of oneness is experienced by us. If you listen to Jesus praying this way and realize, and first, he's praying for you. I'm praying for those who will believe in me through their message, through his apostles' message. We believe on him Through his message, the message has been recorded for us in scripture. It was their message, the teaching of the apostles. Helping us understand the rest of the scriptures and the culmination of them in Christ. And we've heard that and realizing that Jesus, before we did a thing, good or bad, was there praying for us, thinking of us, thinking of where he wanted to take us. 
He wanted us to experience this kind of community and show it as a theater of his wonderment to the world. And the question is, does this become our pursuit? One of Jesus' parting words is, Jesus, uh, Father, please make my people who believe in me, make them one. Make them a people of unity. Let them be so closely connected, so for each other, so accepting of each other, so mindful of each other, so much solidarity for each other, that as the Apostle Paul spins this out, when one of them is hurting, you feel the pain in your heart. When there's 200 kids, 200 families, and only one of them has a together, complete nuclear family that you ache with yearning and desire for the, the healing of such a situation. Because, see, that's what it is to be one. We talk about married people being one. One of the ways that Mike Mason spins that out is, he says, when you are one with your spouse, your spouse is like a giant tree growing up in the middle of your living room. Tell your wife sometime that she's a giant tree. She'll love it. Now, my wife does think I'm a giant tree, and she has reason to. Okay. But the idea is, when you're married, when you're doing this thing right, you're not ideally having parallel lives. You're walking around, and you don't go anywhere except that you've got, you're carrying your wife with you. You're carrying your husband with you. You know how they would respond to something. You take them into account. If you have a giant tree growing up in your living room, you can't go from the bedroom to the kitchen without walking around the tree. You can't go through the house without taking the tree into account. And that's part of what being one is, is that you're really seriously taking each other into account. And of course, if we're one with Jesus, the same thing. We're taking him into account. We're letting him influence us. We're letting the people around us influence us. We're caring deeply and ardently for them as he cares for us. We're making it our goal to say we've got to be, as a goal in my life, connected, not distant. My relationships cannot be perforated relationships. You know how you got that notebook paper? It's meant to rip out easy. It's got the perforated lines. Well, that's a lot of what the relationships we have are. They're, They're throwaway relationships. But Jesus is calling for a community that doesn't believe in throwaway relationships. It believes in marriages that aren't perforatable, but permanent. It believes in friendships that do not tolerate distance to grow because sin has emerged, because feelings have been hurt. But instead it says, I'm going to labor to be made one because that's my Savior's goal for us. You think the world doesn't long for this? Does this ring a bell with you? This is what Garrison Keillor said in one place. Under the old monogamous system... We didn't have the problem of apportioning Thanksgiving and Christmas among your mother and stepdad and your dad and his third wife and your mother-in-law and her husband, I mean, and her boyfriend, Hal, and your father-in-law and his boyfriend, Chuck. Today, cereal, man, you guys are slow today, come on, five-hour energy, that's your, that's your ticket. No, don't, please don't do that. I'm not sure anything good will come of that, but many bad things may. Today, serial monogamy has stretched the extended family to the breaking point. 
That's why so many people want to be with their friends and they don't want to be with their families. Because their family is not a place of oneness. Their family is a place that makes them aware of how bad everything is. It makes them aware that, ah, mostly relationships are a great disappointment. People don't keep their word. People don't take each other into account. People rarely say they're sorry when they've done something wrong. People are brilliant at keeping and holding grudges and nursing them and making them get really big. But Jesus' people here, as we listen to him say, Father, make them one as we are one. Let them be brought to complete unity so that the world may know that you have sent me into the world. It gives us a goal, a daily goal to say, is it my intention to be connected to other Christians? To care for them more than I care for myself? It starts, of course, in your own homes. The people that live there, your roommates, your parents... Your spouse, is my goal with them connection or is it distance? When something comes up between us, do I, do, I, do I ice them out forever? Or do I let them know that they've injured me in some way? Do I take the risk that they might not receive me? The risk, though, that says it's important for us to be one. We must be one. We must fight for oneness. We must aspire to oneness. We must let ourselves be Mutually affected by each other in this community of mutual responsibility that is acting according to Jesus' intentions. Is this your goal? To have permanent but not perforated relationships. Let Jesus' prayer become your pursuit to achieve or to aspire to unity anytime it depends on you. It'll change your prayers, you know. You start realizing that Jesus cares a lot about people being one. You know, another place in the Bible can talk about Jesus being sent into the world as an act of reconciliation. Paul considers himself to be an ambassador of the ministry of reconciliation. Or as a little church on my way to Destin, Florida says, repairers of the breach, which I love. I don't know what that means exactly, but I love it. Repairers of the breach, they're breaches. Not breaches, breaches. Ruptures in relationship between husbands and wives and children and parents and grandparents and siblings and bosses and teammates all over the place. We're ruptured in our relationship to God, to each other, to ourselves, to creation. And Jesus cares a great deal, apparently, because these are the last things on his mind, that his people be the people who are demonstrating what refurbishment of these relationships look like. Make it your goal. But the thing is, as soon as you make unity your goal, reconciliation your goal, oneness your pursuit, because that's Jesus' prayer, you will find this. Unity is hard. This is the second point. Unity is hard because judgment is easy. Unity is hard because judgment is easy. The other day, I was at a football game. After the football game, there was a boy, one of Kaler's friends, who's a very gregarious fellow. He knows no strangers. He fears none. He's a very delightful chap, and he has an injury, so he's wearing 
One of those boots such as you may have worn at some point or another in your life is a broken foot. You know the boots of which I speak. Now this particular boot looked as if he may have done a lot of like demolition derby type stuff and a lot of stuff I'm quite sure he shouldn't have been doing with a broken foot because it was in a bad state of disrepair. It was falling apart. It was mangled. And being a man from a hunting family, he had sought to repair it with the provision and implements that God had entrusted to him, camouflage duct tape. (laughs) And I said, man, your boot looks kind of rough there. He goes, well, I had to fix it with this duct tape. It's camouflage. Don't judge me. Don't judge me, he said. That's the first thing he said. And And then he said, wait, wait, wait. But you're a preacher, right? And I said, yeah, but I judge people all the time. But I'd never judge you for the camouflage on your boot, but I might judge you for your hat. Thank you. But you know what? It's interesting. He was joking around. He's a very winsome and affable fellow. But one of the things is his first thought was to say, don't judge me. Because there aren't many of us who don't walk into rooms either with judgment or fear of it. It makes it awfully hard to be one with somebody if you're in competition with them. If you need them to screw up so that you can look good. If you need them to be worse so that you can be better. If you're always sizing yourself up against them, am I as smart as they are? Am I as pretty as they are? Do I run my family as well as they do? Do I do business as well as they do? There is a principle, says John Newton, a principle of self which makes us despise those who are different from us. There's a principle that lives inside of us that makes us despise people who are different than us. And see, Jesus means to kill that principle. He, need, he means to ra- eradicate it entirely so that when you see somebody in the church, they are not an occasion for condemning or judging. They are an occasion of joy because there before you, you see a physical emblem of God himself. Somebody that God likes, somebody that God made, somebody who has different gifts and abilities and family than you, and God set it up that way. as something to be happy about, not something to be comparing yourself about. Unity is hard because judgment is easy. Keeler says this also. Keeler says, uh, my plan... To become, he's writing about weight loss. I don't know why I'm reading this. My plan is to become, my plan to become slender and willowy and alluring is not working out. And the reason seems to be that though I go for days and days eating only celery and rye crisp and soup made from birch twigs and lichen, I black out occasionally. And when I regain consciousness, consciousness, I am crouched over a half-eaten carcass of gazelle. And my hands and my face are red and sticky. I'm sorry if you have a sensitive palate. And I'm disgusted, of course, and yet very rare gazelle does taste good when you're hungry. And the exertion of chasing one and bringing him down makes a person ravenous. So he talks about the fact that he's had all these suggestions of different strategies he can have for losing weight but none of them quite work you know 
they, none of them kind of fit. So he says, the only thing I know to do is to look in the mirror and declare a whiteout. All white food is gone. I'm going to stick to celery. And he says to a potential critic, but how are you going to, how are you going to enjoy this gift of food that was given to us, this, this thing that helps us after we get off the corporate treadmill? We look forward to these chocolate truffles drenched in bourbon. Or this, these steaks, you know, Ron Burgundy, not Ron Burgundy, Ron Swanson, sorry. Different guys, different guys. And he responds like this. How shall I find the strength not to eat like that? How shall I find the strength? Through the power of self-righteousness, that's how. I will sit with my celery consommé, an undressed salad of bitter greens, and I will look across the table at your gazelle au jus, and I will think, I used to be a helpless glutton like these pitiful idiots. And thank you, Lord, for lifting my feet from the miry pet clay and promoting me to the heights that I presently occupy. He says this, pure, airtight self-righteousness is a powerful engine. There is a bony, blue-nosed, bullet-eyed Puritan inside each of us, and I intend to find mine and put him to work. (laughs) Airtight self-righteousness is a powerful engine. I've got this bony, blue-nosed, bullet-eyed Puritan inside of me. I'm going to find him and put him to work because he knows. See, that taps into this indigenous thing in us, this pride that makes us compare ourselves to everybody else. And I can feel better about me if I can feel worse about you. So when you find yourself, do you ever find yourself just kind of denigrating someone or someone praises somebody around you and you you make sure they know that they don't really deserve the praise or you just kind of politely make sure that people have reason to think poorly of someone so that you can look a little better. This... This power of self-righteousness that gains its ascendancy by being better than someone else. It also gains its despair by feeling you're worse. It keeps people separated. Because you can't be one with somebody that you're competing with. You need to beat them. You can't join them. And so he's recognizing that this judgment is incredibly easy because... I mean, unity is very difficult because judgment is so, so very easy. You judging me because I don't know how to stay organized and I have 400 pieces of paper? A curse be upon you. (laughs) So Jesus' prayer for unity has to become our pursuit. Unity is hard because judgment is easy. So how do we not do it? How do we start to aspire to unity? Jesus says, I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. I want to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, one of the things that Jesus makes very clear about this community of faith that we are, these people around you that God has assigned you to live with 
to do the Christian life with. Paul Tournier says there's only, there's only two things you can't do alone. One is to be married. You've got to do that with somebody else, right? And the other is to be a Christian. And God has put us in a community to be one. To be affected, influenced. If one hurts, to hurt with them. If one rejoices, to rejoice with them. How do we get to that stage when judgment is so easy? It's by recognizing how it is that we came to be part of this community in the first place. Did you ask Jesus to pray for you 2,000 years ago that you might be one? He was already thinking of you. He was already thinking of us. He was already thinking of what he was up to. And the scriptures say that anybody who sees the rest of what he did, what his work was on the cross, will stand beneath that cross and realize, oh, anything about me that I think is better than someone else has been completely eradicated because the one perfect man has been treated like a criminal. He has taken the punishment that was to be upon me, which now gives me peace. A favorite way of thinking about this, since many of you are in school settings, is imagine going to class one day when you have a test. A test that has caused you a great deal of anxiety. Some of you are very responsible. You've stayed up all night studying for this test. You may have said at some point or another, the teacher is so stupid, I can't believe he makes us have this test. And your parents may have said to you, the teacher's not stupid, honey, you are. Don't say that to your kids. It's a joke. See, there's lots of jokes. You get to class. You're studied up. You're nervous wreck. And the teacher says, you know what I've decided to do? No matter what your IQ, no matter what your previous GPA, if I were keeping score here, you'd all fail this test. So I'm just going to go ahead and give you all an A. I'm just going to give you all an A. The dude who played video games all night, if he believes it, is going, Woo! I knew Minecraft, World War War or something, was going to pay off in the end. He's so ecstatic he can't. But some people, the people who who are used to doing better than everybody else, the people who stayed up all night studying, they might be mad. I knew he was going to screw me after all. I knew that this wasn't going to work out for me. But if you started to believe it, wait, 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 I've got an A? I've already got an A? Well, you might actually enjoy the class. You might start to like the teacher. What a swell guy. In this Christian community, Jesus has said he's been sent into the world that he might take away all that is against it. That he might remove all the impediments of the breach between us and him and us and each other. And he said, you've all got A's. That's Steve Brown's analogy. And it's a mighty good one. If you believe it. And then if you start to believe I've been given an A by God. Who if he was keeping score on me, I would have lost. If he was really keeping grades on my life and examining my life, I would fail. But he's given me an A because Jesus took the exam of my life. And he got a 100%. He got a 5 on the AP exam of my life. And he took my F. And if I really believe that, and if you really believe that, 
then you walk out into the world with nothing to prove and nothing to lose. And that's why Paul can say, you've been saved by grace through faith, and even this is a gift so that no one can boast. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, the community of faith who's been summoned together can no longer look at other people when they are in their right minds and judge them because they haven't managed their money well enough or they haven't managed their relationships well enough or they haven't taken good enough care of themselves or they don't work hard enough. You can't look at them with judgment because you have to look at yourself and say, how did God treat me? Oh, he gave me an A. Knowing what I know about myself. So can I extend the same grace to each other? Can I offer that to other people? That begins to be the key to not judging other people, knowing that God has refused to judge us, but has judged His Son for us as a demonstration of His love. It gives us grace-healed eyes. We start seeing each other differently. We start looking at each other differently. Not as competitors, but as people in whom God is at work. Not as someone who's going to show me up or take what's mine, but as people that we can give our lives to for the sake of one another. I close with this story. There's a, there's a story that... I, I told this story in the earlier service and then someone told me a better one, so I'm going to go with that. Aaron and Lisa Tolson recently adopted a little fella, Sammy, from Uganda. And right when he came to America, when he came back, apparently it was Halloween. Which a lot of Christians don't believe is probably the most Christian holiday we've got. Especially on the way they do it in fairyland. Free beer and free candy. I mean, free candy. The community opens wide its arms and there's no discrimination. You just have to show up at the door with open hands and an empty bag, and you get loot given to you. Everybody gets it. Whether your costume's lame or good, whether your parents are intoxicated or sober. Yeah, you think I'm making something up? (laughs) But this little boy, who had lived in an orphanage, he went to the first house, and he held out his hands, and they gave him candy, in each hand, and he clenched those suckers. Nobody gave him candy before. But he was in a bind when we went to the next one, so he popped it in his mouth and got the other candy, and he squeezed that sucker tight. Because he didn't know. He didn't know if there was going to be more candy coming. He didn't know if this was the last candy he was going to get. He didn't know if the affection from the community was a temporary thing. Maybe I only get two bits of affection. He didn't know that he was, he was in a different world where arms had been opened wide to him and he was in a different family where there was some harmony for him and he didn't have to worry about clenching tight to his candy because there was plenty more where that came from. My understanding is as the night went on, he grew more accustomed to this. Oh, each house is going to have more candy? Nobody's going to take my candy? Oh, if you start to believe that, you can share it. And I think it's a lovely story to think we are the community that when we have our right minds, we stand before God 
we open up our hands and say, ah, if you're keeping score of my life, I fail. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's what you got to do a lot, by the way. Have mercy on me, Lord Jesus Christ, and make me someone who aspires to unity. Let me believe that I'm in this community with you because you have loved me. Because you are, I am someone for whom you have died, but so is the person that lives next door to me. And so is the person behind me in the pew, and so is the person, the people in my house, and the people in my family. Let me regard them as precious because you do. Let me not judge them. Let me move toward them in openness, with open hands, sharing and receiving, because we are now this circulatory system of God's grace because of Jesus' prayers. And because he put feet on those prayers and went to a cross for you and me. Paul McCartney had a song, Ebony and Ivory. Live together in perfect harmony, side by side on my piano keyboard. Oh no, why can't we? He sang it with Michael Jackson. He's talking about a keyboard. How black and white can make this beautiful music together. Well, God wants a community that knows the, the joy of brothers dwelling together like oil running down Aaron's beard. Priests to the world, black and white and Asian and poor and educated, people wearing skinny jeans and car hearts, Android users and Apple users. People who drive Toyota Priuses and Chevy trucks. He wants a community that has all been open-handedly receiving from God so that they can share it with the world to give them a taste of something they've rarely seen but often craved. When we do this, it will be a pleasing harmony for the world to sing a song from heaven. Amen.